Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Oh, I'm so excited because this is just a subject. You, you can just picture the excitement when Alina and I found out we were going to do a whole podcast on decapitation. Alina, who have you got for us? So we've got Katie Tucker, who's a freelance human osteologist and archaeologist. Uh, she's also a published author and her latest book is An Archaeology of Human Decapitation Burials. Go buy it, people. Seriously. Oh, pictures are awesome. I know, right? It is like the coolest book ever. So welcome, Katie. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now we sound like a right bunch of weirdos, but this is actually a brilliant topic. Um, and it's about time we had some more archaeology. It's been a while. Um, I'll just to start right at the beginning. Can you define a decapitation burial for us? Yes. Um, basically, the way um, I treated it, because it was actually it was my PhD subject as well, just to kind mm-hmm. of go back as to why I started doing it. Um, but yeah, a decapitation burial in most most cases, anyway is a, uh, a skeleton, an articulated skeleton. So everything is in all the places that it should be when they're lying in the ground, apart from their head is not in the correct place. So you will often get individuals where their head is by their feet or between their knees or some cases under their pelvis. Um, so it's quite common that, yeah, it's not in the right place anymore. You do get some rarer examples where the head is still more or less in the correct position. So when you're excavating the skeleton, it looks like just a normal skeleton. Uh, But then when you look at the bones themselves, there's evidence on the bones that the individual had been decapitated, even though the head is kind of where it should be. So that's kind of the, the majority of decapitation burials. You get some other slightly rarer ones where you just have a head uh, with maybe a few neck vertebrae. Um, And I think it's important to distinguish as well because you have to think that if you're talking about a decapitation, it has to be the whole head that you're talking about. So not just the cranium. So you have to have the mandibles at the lower jaw as well. And normally some neck vertebrae as well, because crania on their own can end up floating around for all manner of different reasons and it doesn't necessarily mean that someone was decapitated if you just have their cranium i was going to throw in a really bad joke that i I think i might avoid that one and um start talking about the different types of decapitations that there are because let's do it everyone thinks you're a big enough weirdo as it is let's move on with the scientific questions yeah and not my silly jokes um so i think we should start with murder um okay what kind of uh, decapitations can you find relating to murder and how can you actually be sure that they're just that 
they are just murder victims. Yeah, you've actually picked probably the most difficult one to try and answer first. That's fine. That's just me. Go for it. How do you identify? How do you <laughs> identify a murder victim? Um, because when uh, when you're dealing with decapitation burials, the focus of my research really was on the um, the Romana British period. So we were talking about cemetery sites in Britain that have these decapitated individuals within them. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's tricky when you're talking about murders because would they have been buried in a cemetery? So would you be likely to find them, um, if they'd been, um, clandestine burials or something, we'll only kind of very rarely stumble upon, um, burials like that anyway. And then if you're going to get an individual who's decapitated, that would be even rarer. But of course, the problem is you may have got individuals who were murdered, their bodies were then found, and then they were buried in a normal cemetery. So in that sense, they then may share characteristics with other individuals who were decapitated for other reasons. Because I was going to go with war next, because obviously that is like a form of murder and it's a violent act and stuff. But perhaps then they're not carted off and buried in the same way, are they? Yeah, I mean, again, with war, um, I again, for the Roman period, obviously, it's difficult because how do you identify individuals who may have died in war in the Roman period? But I did look at some individuals from the medieval period from cemeteries in York. Um, and there were a number of individuals who had been decapitated. But the interesting thing was is they all had other injuries as well. And these were injuries that were not directly related to the act of being decapitated. Oh, so this is perhaps like wounded people and then they've come along and beheaded them all. That could have been what was happening or just that in kind of the confusion of battle and and everything else, you're getting individuals who are being injured in lots of different ways, not just having their heads cut off. Um, So the, the decapitation may have been either like an incidental part of the whole kind of suite of injuries that they have, or as you say, it could have been that they were kind of um, putting them out of their misery afterwards. Uh, so pretty much all the, the skeletons that I looked at where there was good evidence to suggest that they were killed in battle, they had lots of injuries. So on their legs, on their torso, on their arms, um, and not just around the neck and head. This is the one we've all been waiting for. The last one. Executions, because they are probably the most interesting, I'm going to say cool, interesting forms of decapitation. Um, Again, to- this is why no one on this program has a boyfriend. But yeah, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on very swiftly. Um, because while I was reading your book, because uh, I'm just going to throw that in there because it is yeah. quite a cool book. Um, your, awesome your, book. <laughs> your awesome book of decapitations. Um, basically, some of the execution, it's not just obviously they're cutting the heads off because there's other marks as well isn't it because it's not as just simple as cutting their head off yeah because i mean the problem with 
Well, the problem with decapitations generally, and the reason why I decided that I wanted to look at it, is that um, it was always assumed whenever a decapitation was found that it was done post-mortem, so after the individual was dead, as some, uh, as a, some strange type of burial ritual. And people would come up with all these different interpretations as to why they were cutting people's head off after death. Um, I was like, oh, so they can get to the afterlife, or so they, it stops them from going to the afterlife, or because it's um, killing uh, their soul, or all these type of strange reasons that people were coming up with. Um, and I was working on this cemetery site in York again, actually. Uh, I did a lot of work in York. And it's quite a famous uh, cemetery site in terms of decapitations uh, called Driffield Terrace. And it's all these military age men um, who I think about 85% of them or something were decapitated. And the the leader of the excavation was talking to the media about this site, even before I'd kind of done any of the work on the skeletons. I'd, done, I'd looked at a few of them, and he was already saying, oh, yes, it's a post-mortem burial ritual. Oh, for God's sake. Um, like, well, I haven't, like, I haven't looked at them yet. <laughs> it's like, how, how do you know that? Uh, and the evidence that I was seeing amongst the, the individuals as I looked at them was that this doesn't look like post-mortem to me. Um, particularly if you, it's interesting as well, because that's always the explanation given for decapitations from the Roman period. Um, and also something else I should add in as well. This is a peculiarly Romano-British phenomenon for some strange reason that I've not been able to explain. Oh, so it's not throughout the Roman world? Not this, no, you, you do get individuals throughout the Roman world who have been decapitated, but they seem much more to have been the victims of massacres or other kind of um, other violent acts, and they're not buried in normal cemeteries. So mm. you find them in wells or in ditches or in houses, or so it, it seems that they were kind of killed in war or in massacres or other kind of uh, contexts. But decapitations where it's these kind of burials that look, apart from the fact that they've had their head cut off, look normal in every other way to everybody else buried in the cemetery is peculiar to uh, Roman Britain. One of the reconstruction drawings in your book um, shows like a woman in her grave and it's like laid out in that they've cut her head off and put it at her feet. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely a deliberate act in mm. in how they're burying the individuals, but I think it's more you have to look at the evidence from the bones when you're talking about why they were doing it, um, because you could have executed criminals or executed people for whatever reason they were executing them their families were allowed to retrieve their bodies. So they would retrieve their bodies, bury them in a normal cemetery with grave goods and whatever, in a coffin or whatever else they wanted to do. Um, 
But for some reason, they've chosen to mark the fact that they were decapitated. They didn't put the head back in the right place for whatever reason. Um, so, I mean, certainly there may have been post-mortem rituals associated with the act of decapitation, but that doesn't mean that the decapitation itself was post-mortem. Um, because going back to the, the subject of executions and whether they're executions, there's quite a good comparable body of data from the Anglo-Saxon period mm -hmm. where you have these specific cemeteries where they buried people who had been executed. Um, and these cemeteries are often on uh, boundaries or on prehistoric monuments or other kind of um, standout locations in the environment. So people would know this is where you bury people who've been executed. And they've all got this quite typical pattern um, of decapitation where the decapitation is done from the back. Sometimes they've had their necks bent so that you can imagine them maybe kind of kneeling with their head forward. And it's normally a limited number of blows as well. So one or two blows is kind of typical. Um, the blows can go into the mandible, so into the lower jaw or sometimes into the, the scapula or the clavicle, so the shoulder blade or the collarbone sometimes as well. And these have always been accepted as being executions. No one has ever said, oh, these must have been some post-mortem burial ritual yeah. in, with these individuals. So when I was looking at the, the Roman uh, decapitations, a very large number of them shared those characteristics in terms of the, the um, skeletal evidence for decapitation. So to me, that would suggest that if the skeletal evidence looks the same, why can't the explanation be the same uh, in the Roman period? So, um, I mean, you also, you do get some individuals where their hands are bound behind their back. Uh, it's a small number, though. Um, so you really, sometimes you have very little additional evidence, but it's just the fact that the signature of decapitation on the bones looks so similar to the ones that are accepted to be executions from later periods that why, why couldn't this be the case for the Roman uh, individuals as well? Really good point. I've actually got a follow-up question. Um, of course you have. <laughs> I always have a follow-up question. Oh, you never have follow-up questions when it's naval history. Because boats are boring? Shut up and get on with it. Okay, so you, um, you've been telling us things about being post-mortem. How do you know that if it's uh, a decapitation post-mortem? I mean, is there evidence or something different to do with the bones? Oh, I need to know this. You need to answer this for me. Just in case you ever stumble upon a, a decapitated corpse on exactly. your travels. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I can answer that because there is a, a much smaller number of individuals Interestingly, more commonly in rural um, cemetery sites, though not exclusively found in rural cemetery sites, and these individuals look like they've had their head removed uh, very, very carefully. So they're most commonly done from the front. They're in a very specific part of the neck that is kind of easily accessible, and it almost looks like 
they've been sometimes like disarticulated. So they very carefully removed the head or they've used a small knife and they've made lots of little cut marks to cut through the connective tissues of the neck to remove the head. Um, and I think they are the ones that are most likely to be post-mortem. Because if you're trying to do that to somebody who isn't dead, there's too much blood in the way. You're not going to be able to see what you're doing. Um, so I think these are the ones where the, the evidence from the bones is most convincing that they're post-mortem. But it is a much smaller number of individuals than the ones where it's done from behind. Hmm. Um, I really want to know, are there any other reasons for decapitation that you've sort of found? Like maybe cultural or religious, I don't know, like human sacrifice, religious, anything like that? Well, yeah, it's interesting you should ask that because I, I think there's a very small number of hmm. individuals that I've recorded where I'm believe and it's probably very controversial i believe that we may have got evidence for live human sacrifice banging where <laughs> where um, when <laughs> there's a couple of individuals from winchester um couple from york i think and off the top of my head i can't remember where else i've I recorded uh, these it's quite a small number yeah but the reason I think they may be live human sacrifice is that as well as being decapitated, they've also had their throats cut. And to me, I think that if the point of what you are doing is to just decapitate somebody for whatever reason, why would you cut their throat first? Mm. That's a good point. Whereas if we're talking about live human sacrifice, the release of blood is often in a lot of these different sacrificial rituals, kind of in all different cultures and all over the world, is um, very, very important. So the fact that you're cutting their throat, you are releasing their blood, and then you are decapitating them. Because otherwise, why bother? It's a waste of effort, isn't it? Yeah. It's Unless just... you're a particular kind of sociopath. Well, it's just pointless. I mean, if you're going to then cut their head off with a very sharp sword or an axe or whatever you're going to use, then why yeah. bother cutting their throat? I mean, you'd have to be a weirdo. And if you've seen this at multiple sites, then there's got to be an explanation, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's very small numbers. But, I mean, this is pretty convincing evidence. And these, the individuals where they have been, have, have had their throats cut, sorry, they've then been decapitated normally from behind. So it's not like it's a misplaced cut that they've then made other cuts around it. It's like it's a different, different part of the process. And often by the look of it being done with a different implement, because you can't cut someone's head off from the back in a very clean cut with a knife. Uh, whereas the throats are being cut with a knife by the look of it. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you sent us a couple of case studies that we're going to have a look at. Um, we should start with the first one, which is Alfred the Great. Tell us about him. Ah, yes. Well, <laughs> I have to say that um, I only really know stuff about Alfred the Great after he died. <laughs> so, <laughs> so nothing before. Okay. He Just was some he bloke who evidently someone quite liked because they gave him that title. Who? Oh, yeah, he was some big important king. Um, about a thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Ish. But yeah, I was God, this involved... medievalist just cringing across the world. <laughs> Sorry, died. Eleanor Yanniger and all of your friends. <laughs> he died in my <laughs> mind. I can tell you when he died. Um, but yeah, I really don't know that much about him when he was alive. Uh, to my shame, probably. Um, but I was involved in a project uh, a number of years ago, and it's very, it's very complicated story. So I mean. To give you all the ins and outs, I could probably be here for an hour just talking about (laughs) the project that we did. And I've actually given quite a number of uh, talks to uh, local archaeology societies and various other people where I just talk about this project. (laughs) Um, But I was involved in a project uh, that was a collaboration between the University of Winchester, where I used to work, and um, Hyde 900 who are a community group in Winchester in the parish of Hyde, which is on the north of Winchester. And there's kind of long been this rumour that the remains of King Alfred and other members of his family were buried in the churchyard of Hyde Parish Church. Uh, And there's um, a grave there that has nothing on it. It's like it's a, a stone slab. And it's just got a little incised cross on it. And that's it. And it's, there's no other identifying features. Uh, but it's, it was supposed that this is where the remains of Alfred and his family were. So um, we set up a project to investigate this unmarked grave, as it's so-called. Um, mostly, actually, because the top stone was loose and was getting damaged every time they were trying to uh, cut the grass in the churchyard so part of it was to actually be able to restore um, the grave and to then figure out at the same time who was in the grave and was it actually King Alfred and his family Um, but obviously it's quite a complicated story to think how did King Alfred go from uh, dying in 899 to ending up in this unmarked grave in this parish churchyard and yeah this is <laughs> this is the complicated story so I will do my best to summarize it <laughs> without it taking an hour 
Um, so as I said, uh, Alfred died in 899. He was originally buried in the first cathedral in Winchester. Um, but he, he'd always intended to set up another church, uh, which would be his kind of like family church. Um, and he never managed to do it in his lifetime, but his son, Edward the Elder, did manage to build this new church. And uh, he had his father's body moved about four years after he died to this new church, which was just next door to the cathedral. Um, and so he'd only been dead for four years. He'd already been moved once. And then his body stayed in this new church, um, which was called the New Minster. There was the Old Minster, which was the original cathedral, and the New Minster, this new family church. And um, the Old Minster then subsequently was rebuilt as the Norman Cathedral, which was much bigger than the Old Minster, and it started to encroach on the grounds of the New Minster. Um, and there's all these tales of like the, the two choirs singing in the two churches, but singing in different keys and different um, hymns. So they were all like clashing and the church bells ringing at the same time and just causing all this horrible noise because they were trying to, they were competing with each other, these two churches. So eventually the New Minster uh, in 1110 was moved out to Hyde. They built a brand new um, monastic church and monastic grounds out at Hyde. And it is thought, though annoyingly, there are no definite sources for this, as is often the case in this um, relatively early period, that the body of Alfred and his son and Alfred's wife and maybe some other people as well were moved from Newminster out to this new church at Hyde uh, because the community of monks and everything wanted to take everything that they had in the church with them. And this included the bodies of Alfred because you can imagine probably a lot of pilgrims and people were coming uh, to visit the grave so they weren't going to leave them behind um, so they moved them all over uh, to Hyde uh, there they sat for another few hundred years and then you get the dissolution of the monasteries and of course this also affected Hyde so the building was um, kind of partially demolished all the relics and everything were either all the gold and everything else was taken, the relics, everything else were burned. Uh, it's thought that the graves of Alfred um, and his family were not affected too badly, but again, we don't know. Uh, the ground was then obviously building stone and everything was then used for various other buildings. And there's been projects actually recently trying to find stones from Hyde Abbey that have been built into the walls of buildings in Hyde. Um, so that's been an interesting kind of additional project that's been going on. Um, and then in the 1770s, they decided to use this nice, open, empty site to build the prison in Winchester. <laughs> um, Sorry, what? They, they decided to build a prison on the site. <laughs> oh, my God, okay. Oh, guy. 
in the 1770s. And in the process of building the prison, they um, wanted to uh, create a nice garden for the governor of the prison. And in the process of levelling off this nice garden, they um, discovered graves or tombs, as they called them. And they said that one of these tombs was lined on the inside and outside with lead. Um, and it had all these bones within it. Um, and there's a, a newspaper report from the time saying they found two skeletons like intertwined with one another. Um, which what I probably think that means is they were bundles of bones. Yeah, chucked if in. Yeah, if they'd already been moved a number of times, they were bundles of bones and there were supposed to be like bits of gold and silk and various other things. So um, it seems that probably what they'd done in building this garden is they had stumbled upon the graves of Alfred and Edward and possibly Alfred's wife, Ellswitha, as well. And there are now mixed reports about what happened. Um, either the bones were strewn about, as somebody uh, quoted, um, and they sold the gold and some other stuff. Or the bones were buried in a pit just on the corner of the precinct of the um, original abbey. And that, where I think that pit may be, is now in the back gardens of a row of Victorian houses in Winchester. Um, so it'd be interesting to see maybe if we can get permission at some point to go and dig up people's gardens to see if there is a pit full of bones. Um, you weren't lying when you said this was a faff. This is a faff, yes. So <laughs> we're now at the 1770s. Yeah. Um, okay, it doesn't get any less complicated. So <laughs> then, for some reason, I don't know why, they decided after about 70 years that this prison site wasn't good enough anymore. So they moved the prison somewhere else in Winchester. So it was now another kind of abandoned site. I think they demolished the buildings as well, the prison buildings. Um, and then in the 1860s, this uh, guy turns up who has styled himself as an antiquary. And he's got a bit of an obsession with Alfred. Um, and he starts digging in this in the site of the abbey and then declares um on alfred's birthday no less declares that he has found alfred um and edward and ellswitha and a few other people as well um and and the reason he says that he knows that it's alfred is he compares the, the best skull that he found with the coin of Alfred and says, well, look, they look identical. So this must be Alfred. <laughs> Bloody Victorians. <laughs> so, yeah, it's quite ridiculous. Um, but basically what happens is eventually the, um, the vicar of Hyde's parish church buys these bones um, and I think there's a there's a little note in the parish records saying that they um, purchased uh, relics for I think it was five shillings or something. Um, so they acquired the bones 
It's just like a grown-up coming along and going, give them to me, here's five shillings, just give me the bones and go away. And this antiquary as well, someone else gave him, um, I think it was a, it's like a mandolin or something. It was a musical instrument anyway, so he could just go away and like earn his living doing something else. Yeah. Um, so they, then the intention was to put these bones into a, uh, a wooden, a nice wooden uh, box in a niche in the church. That never happened. And then there are contemporary reports, actually a letter uh, from someone saying that the bones had been buried in this uh, stone vault outside the east window of the church with a little incised cross on it. So um, there's good evidence from this letter and from everything else that the bones in that uh, unmarked grave are the same bones that this guy in the 1860s excavated. Um, So we've got good um, historical records, well, as good as they're ever going to get, that these are definitely the same things. So we excavated this unmarked grave. And um, there were five skeletons in there, plus parts of a sixth skeleton. So we had five skulls, um, four pretty complete individuals, one not so complete and a leg from somebody else. Um, And we had them radiocarbon dated. And they're all medieval. So they are 12th century up to the 16th century. So right. definitely not <laughs> Alfred. <laughs> um, oh dear. But this is not even the end. That's not even the end. <laughs> so <laughs> there had been um, a lot of excavations in the 1990s at the site of the Abbey as well. Um, on one of these, there was a big scheme in the 1990s called Earthwatch where they got people, particularly from the States, to come over and take part in... They would pay and they would come and uh, take part in excavations for a couple of weeks, three weeks, a month or whatever. So one of these schemes, they did excavations at the site of the Abbey and they concentrated on the east side of the church. Partially because they wanted to investigate all this history about um, the bones being found in the 1770s and then being found again in the 1860s. And um, they found the pits that correspond to the digging in the 1770s and what this guy did in the 1860s. And they found human bone um, within a number of features uh, that they excavated, including a piece of pelvis from the backfill of the pit that this guy had dug in the 1860s. And again, we got some of these fragments of bone radiocarbon dated. And this fragment of pelvis from the backfill of the pit that the guy had excavated when he said he'd found Alfred is the only fragment that has a date consistent with Alfred or his son, Edward. Um, And it's a male pelvis. It's about the right age for Alfred or Edward. Um, So it's quite ironic, really, that maybe the only bit of Alfred or Edward that now survives, 
the guy who said he thought he'd found them in the 1860s didn't think it was important threw it back into his pit um so yeah that's kind of that is the story of, <laughs> of alfred the great and his adventures post-mortem that's that so complicated <laughs> Poor Alfred. Really complicated, yeah. <laughs> you gave us another one, which was the St Mary Magdalene Leprosy Hospital in Winchester. This sounds like it was a blast. Oh, this, yeah, it's an absolutely amazing site. Um, mm. This was the, it was the training excavation uh, for the archaeology students at Winchester from, I think they did the first season in, first excavation season in 2008. And their final excavation season there in 2015. And I took part in um, every season bar one from t- 2009 onwards. Um, and yeah, it's the, it was run by Simon Roffey and Phil Marta at the um, archaeology department. And yeah, it's just an absolutely amazing site. Winchester... Around Winchester, you're on the chalk as well. So the preservation was amazing. You just have to take like 20 centimetres of topsoil and a bit of subsoil off and you were onto walls and um, we had the part of the the chapel and lots of buildings associated with the the hospital. But obviously most kind of uh, importantly, as far as I was concerned, um, is we have a lot of graves uh, of individuals who were buried at the hospital. And from analysis of these, and again, because we're talking chalk, the preservation of the skeletons is absolutely fantastic. And we did a very time-consuming um, sampling process that meant that with some of the skeletons, we have a 100% recovery rate of the bones, which is pretty much unheard of, really. Um, and with, I think it's, again, it's about 85% or so of individuals from, um, the hospital have skeletal evidence for leprosy, which is massively high when you compare it with other leprosy hospital sites that have been excavated in the UK. Uh, there's another famous site in uh, Chichester, um, which is a slightly later hospital site but again was a specific hospital for individuals with leprosy but there we're talking only 20% of individuals have the skeletal evidence and we've got as I said about 85% with skeletal evidence. What is the evidence what does it look like? Okay well um, leprosy it's caused by a mycobacterium and basically it's a chronic disease and it affects your peripheral nerves mostly Um, and also your skin so you can get very bad skin lesions and um, a lot of individuals will you tend to lose your eyebrows and you get um, patches on the skin where you can't they they often turn pale and you can't feel them Mm. Uh, and in more severe cases it does affect the bones so because it affects the peripheral nerves the way that it most commonly affects the bones is that it causes loss of feeling in your extremities, so particularly in your hands and your feet. So people with quite severe leprosy, if you lose the feeling in your foot or in your hand or any other part of your body, it's very easy to injure 
yourself and not realize that you've done it. So there's reports of people, for example, accidentally putting their foot in a fire and not feeling that they've done it. So then you get very severe infections associated with those injuries because people haven't realized that they've hurt themselves, that they don't realize they need to get these injuries looked at because they don't know they have them Mm. um so you get very severe infections and that causes um changes to the bones uh so you get a lot of new bone growth as a result of infections particularly in the lower legs and you can also get a lot of injuries to the toes that mean you can lose parts of the toes but again there's there's a strange process that goes on in leprosy and I may be wrong, but I don't think it's quite been figured out exactly why it happens. But it causes bone to resorb um, in the fingers, toes, well, in the hands and feet, I should say, and also around the nose and mouth. So you get individuals where they've lost the front of their um, maxilla, so their upper jaw. So they've lost all their teeth, their hard palate has resorbed. Their, their nose has become sunken because they've lost a lot of bone around their nose. Uh-huh. They've lost fingers and toes. Um, and we have a number of individuals uh, that we've excavated where they have these very, very severe changes. Yeah. Um, so it's quite, it's quite clear if you have the, the full picture uh, that these are individuals who are definitely this is leprosy that we're talking about. So you've also told us about the field school. Uh, can you tell us about it? Because uh, it's run by Transylvania Bioarchaeology and obviously you're Correct. part of it. I am, yeah. Um, this is a, it's a really great project. And I just have to say that everyone that I work with there, the whole team, it's like it's the most amazing group of people. Um, and we get on so well. Um, and it's really upsetting this year because, of course, we, we normally go from the end of June until the beginning of August every year. And, of course, this year we've not been able to go. Um, so, yeah, I've been missing everyone <laughs> that I work with a lot. Um, so we've been incredibly nerdy and we've... <laughs> We've had like Zoom Dungeons and Dragons uh, <laughs> evenings and a Zoom murder mystery with a Roman theme a couple of weeks ago, just so we would be able to see each other and talk to each other. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a project that basically was put together by um, my colleague, Corrie Philippek, who's at Durham University. She's really kind of the brains behind it all. And... The idea was, um, particularly American students, they, they, for their degree, they really have to find um, a field school to go on. But they, they're often not provided by their university. Um, so we've set up this field school in um, Romania, in Transylvania, just outside a place called Cluj Napoca. And students come on the field school and they're there for five weeks and the um, field school is focused on a 12th century uh, cemetery site um, that is on the site of a Roman villa 
The Roman villa has already been excavated. That was excavated in about 2007, so we've not been doing that. Um, but um, we've been focusing on the cemetery. And I have to say as well that this is in collaboration with the um, Institute of Archaeology and Art History in Cluj-Napoca. And um, I'm the co-director of the excavation. And um, my co-director from the Institute there is um, Dr. Ian Stanchu. And he was the one who excavated the Rome Villa. And yeah, he's an excellent archaeologist. So we'll be doing a lot of very good work with him and he's always on the site and it's quite interesting though because he doesn't speak English or ref refuses to speak English I should say because he doesn't speak <laughs> good enough so um, we have to speak in German and my German even though I've lived in Germany for a number of years is still not fantastic um, but yeah we, we get on with it um, yeah so it's a really amazing project because the students, they spend half their time in the field, half their time in the lab, and the work that they're doing is um, they excavate the skeletons and then they're analysing the skeletons all from the same site. The students do all of the work because it's um, a lot of field schools that you go on. I think it's, this is probably changing now, but at least the days when I used to go on field schools as a student you were basically seen as um, the people who would handle the shovels and do all the manual labour, but you wouldn't actually do any of the recording or any of the analysis or anything. Uh, so, I mean, I've been on field schools and you just thought, like, why am I here? It's like I'm not learning anything. <laughs> So uh, we've been really, uh, the way we've set it up is really great because the students do everything on site. The only thing I ever tend to do on site is obviously teach them how to do the archaeology and how to do all the recording and drawing and photography and everything else. But the only thing I really do apart from that is the manual labour <laughs> sometimes. Um, and they also do all of the uh, skeletal analysis. They have a lot of lectures um we do a lot of like uh team activities they get put into two teams and then they have to do these team challenges every week um things like apple bobbing and all this <laughs> bizarre stuff um and we also take them on a five-day field trip where we travel around uh, transylvania and show them all the sites because uh, i mean you can't go to transylvania without going to the sites associated with um uh Vlad's Dracul and all this stuff so of course we do all of that uh yeah and it's just it's a really amazing project and I'm so upset that we've not been able to go this year Alex when are we going yeah uh, as soon as we can get out of the country <laughs> yeah results I'm in I'm in for this uh, for the field school it's been a while since I've excavated about two years but I'm getting in there Oh, yeah. I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. Brilliant. <laughs> as long as let's just hope that things can go back to normal by next year. Oh, fingers crossed. Yes, indeed. Katie, thank you so much for coming and joining us and talking about decapitations because um, decapitation burials are a very, very interesting subject. Uh, I'm refraining oh, from so using anyway. anything other than... <laughs> what you really want to say is this has been so much fun. <laughs> 
and it's been so cool yeah pretty much that's exact that is thank you Alex I was trying to be professional but you took the professionalism out of my mouth but thank you so much Katie for joining us yeah thank you so much for having me it's been great to chat to you Join us tomorrow when Craig Smith will be with us to talk all about America's founding fathers or what he likes to term as the founders because he thinks there's more than men that deserves the credit. But we talk about some giants in American history and what exactly they did to help their fledgling nation gain prominence in the world. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.